Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It's Wednesday, August the 15th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. We are absolutely in the dog days, the doldrums of politics at this point in the middle of August. We are lining up a few interesting podcasts, or at least I hope you're going to find them interesting, on the broader subject of politics over the next couple of weeks. But I did drag in my colleagues, uh, political reporter Sarah Barden and deputy political editor Fia Kelly, to run the rule over a very quiet political week. Sarah, you're very welcome back. It's a long time since you've been in the studio. Thank you. you had a nice great time away. Back. Yes, great. Thank great to be back, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> she didn't miss one episode of the podcast. She was listening oh, on her holidays. You were on the, on, on, on the beach listening yeah, every week. Exactly. Every week. Um, it's such an exciting time for politics at the minute, so you know, I'm really happy that I'm here. Indeed it is. It uh, before we started recording here, we were talking about how much, how much we had to talk about on the political scene. And uh, it, it's a little bit like Seinfeld was famously described as a show about absolutely nothing. And uh, in a way, this politics podcast today is that fake because there's not a lot going on. No, I think this week is the probably one of the quietest news weeks of the year. People have stuff to tie them through the week after the August bank holiday weekend. And then the week after that, people are still on their holidays and there's not, not much happening. And you have to wait for people to come back after holidays. So there isn't much happening on the political scene apart from, uh, to, <laughs> I can't believe it's not a heave, Labour heave, which is, seems to be going from weakness to weakness every, now, we, with every I mean, passing we, day. We, we talked about this in disparaging terms last week, but it's still there. It's still there. And it's kind of funny. Um, there seems to be this kind of drip, drip of, of county councillors coming out saying that Brendan Howland needs to either go or open a discussion about his position. And because either he has not yet come out and said, I'm not going anywhere to stop this, or a member of the PP hasn't come out and said, this is nonsense, we need to stop it now. Um, it just seems continuing. And you just wonder that if it continues on for a number of weeks, will it become an issue when the political season really kicks back in in, in September? Um th- most people in the PP believe that the councillors are, are agitated and on edge because of the really bad polls in recent weeks and they are the ones who are likely to face the electorate next because the general election has kind of fallen fallen back uh, along the electoral timescale and the local elections are next spring. And if you're a Labour Party councillor looking as the last behaviour and attitudes poll for the Sunday Times had them on 3% behind the independent alliance and on 4% in Dublin, then you would have reason to be worried. And I think that's where the... The momentum, if there is any, is coming coming from the kind of the the, the involvement or otherwise of Alan Kelly is what what most people are are talking about uh, within the parliamentary party. Is he involved, or is he just letting this play out? And, and what think, do you think? Um, initially, at the start, most people believe that he well, he wasn't that this just 
came from a couple of councillors who were panicked um, when they saw the polls. And most people in the... There's a split opinions in the PP. One member I spoke to last night said that didn't believe, didn't seem that he was behind it, but he was standing back and allowing it to happen. Like, he has been tweeting, he's been on social media, um, but he hasn't been answering his phone calls, phone calls or texts from journalists, so he hasn't come out to stop it. Probably because these councillors will be naturally inclined to support him in a contest anyway, so he doesn't want to cut them off the knees now, and then they will remember it if there is a contest. So I think he's probably happy to see it play out and see where it goes. Um, but as to his active involvement, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure yet. What's the reality on the ground, whatever about the views of these councillors, Sarah, on, um, on Brendan Howland's leadership, whether in the Dáil or in media or the polls, as, 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 as Fiac says, Traditionally, when a party gets a really serious knockback in an election, as Labour certainly did last time around, you hear a lot about how the leader, whether they be a new leader or not, the first thing they have to do is get out, you know, do the the, the digging work, the spade work to kind of reinvigorate the party at local level, find new candidates, do all that kind of stuff. Has Labour been managing to do that? Are there is there a fresh new slate of candidates coming through for the local elections? Um, he has done a, a national tour and he has gone across the country to speak to councillors and stuff. I think the difficulty for them is more in a national perspective. So while they may make some minor grounds, you know, local level, they're being absolutely they're being eclipsed on the on the national scale. So you know, the Social Democrats, um, the Green Party, and the Labour Party are all fighting for the same uh, centre left vote. Exactly, and it's very difficult for the Labour Party to um, identify differently to the, than the Social Democrats and the Green Party because essentially, you know, they're all they're all fighting for the same vote. What's happening now, in a way, is almost it's almost a little bit too late like the Labour Party for you know are not making any ground in the opinion polls and if I was a member of the Labour Party or a supporter of the Labour Party I'd certainly be questioning what needs to what needs to change but the difficulty for them is where do, where did they turn and the same problem arises for them that arose when Joan Burton stood aside as party leader it's that Alan Kelly does not have the support of the parliamentary party um, and they believe that he's, you know, he's very hot-headed, ill-tempered at times and they don't necessarily believe that that's the person that should be leading them into a general election. And there's no other option in the admittedly rather small parliamentary party or TDs to be more precise, not yeah, just the parliamentary well, party, it has, it has to be, be a TD. A TD and that's the difficulty for them because a lot of people would believe that someone like Aon or Reardon or even uh, Jed Nash could potentially have some leadership material but unfortunately for them, they have to elect a TD. So their emphasis is really going into electing people like Jed Nash and Aon or Reardon um, and ensuring that they make some some ground in the next general election and then looking at a lead. That's, that's their... Because that's Brendan Howland is essentially a placeholder. He's essentially there. To which doesn't election. actually... Which, which, which in itself can't be great if you're trying to reinvigorate the party, I'm if that's a sense around him. to Brendan, I mean, when we had him in here a couple of months ago I mean he I think he identifies that that is his role is that mm. he's there to steady the ship he's there to calm the troops and to take labor through what they would describe as a period of reflection um but no doubt that there are plenty of councillors across the country and you know Fiat's been writing about a lot over the last couple of weeks that are getting nervous and anxious because they're just it's not going anywhere mm. for them um Brendan Howland would argue that it's going to you know Fianna Fáil had five years to do it in the Labour Party needs similar time periods too but they don't have the luxury of time mm. while the general election uh, talk has abated and it's unlikely to take place this year or early next year it looks um 
the local elections are coming and in order for the Labour Party to grow they need to get make gains, gains sorry at the local uh, a local electoral level and if they don't do that then what is the future of the and, and Fiat Sarah mentioned Aon Reardon hmm. who seems to be the heir apparent either himself or Jed Nash if he gets re-elected to the Dáil from, from, from Louth Aon Reardon had a op-ed piece in the Irish Times today or a couple of days ago where he was sort of attempting to address some of these questions about what Sarah is referring to these kind of you know all these small parties, including mm. Labour, uh, competing in this in this small centre-left pool and what might be done about that. Yeah, he raised the prospect of co- uh, cooperation between the Greens, Social Democrats and the Labour Party and others who may be of that uh, political persuasion. Um, the unfortunate thing is that's extremely unlikely to happen. While you, you could see some coordination between the Greens, for example, and the Labour Party, although there are constituencies where they're at each other's throat when we're talking about electoral rivalry. Like if you look at Dublin Bay South, you have Kevin Humphreys, who is vying to take back his seat and Eamon Ryan is occupying that centre-left space now in the Dáil for that constituency. So there are difficulties there. But it is hard to see any uh, kind of cooperation between the Social Democrats and Labour. There is just too much animosity between the players at the top. Is this just about the top? Is it about Roisin think the current parliamentary party? Probably not, because if you look at like the the Social Democrats, um, they're activist base, their recent recruits are all much younger people who 10 years ago may have been going towards the Labour Party. Mm. So there's probably a view in the Social Democrats that we are the coming centre-left I wouldn't say force, but we're the coming centre-left movement. We are eating into the Labour Party on an activist level, on a membership level, so why would we give them the kiss of life? And are they right about that in terms of numbers, do you know? In terms of numbers, not quite sure, but they are probably the, the party that has reaped the most benefit from, say, people who came involved in marriage equality and repeal the eight. That's where that effort is going into the Social Democrats because, let's face it, they haven't been tainted by the experience of government. They're relative clean skins. So I think they, they are seen as an attractive option. And they are a, a party that has a much more modern face. Like, the, the Social Democrats of all the parties curiously are having difficulties with their gender balance but they're having difficulties completely opposite to what the other parties have they have too many women they may, the not, they may not they may not men. they may not yeah, so, so they are very much a party of the moment if you like of a certain time and place and they are probably looking at the Labour Party going why would we do this why would we give them a kiss of life now that may change after a general election I, I can't see it happening before a general election but if they were to kind of form a caucus of 10 to 12 seats and make themselves really key players in any government formation talks the and it could happen. The difficulty arises for the Social Democrats this time round as it has done last time round. It, you, Catherine Murphy and Roisin Shortall are, will probably always be re-elected mm. in their individual constituencies because they're very, um, they're very influential TDs in their own right. But they need to make gains. I mean, yes, they have seen this uh, from my understanding is they have seen a, a significant increase in their membership since particularly the referendum because they were very uh, they were very ground level based and you know canvassed quite strongly um, for repealing the Eighth Amendment but the same problem arises for them you know where where do the Social Democrats make gains where do they have their TDs elected you Sure know? I mean we've heard and we've had one or two of them in the studio here you know they're very very presentable new faces but in, most in constituencies at, like Dunleary and a couple of other you know constituencies around Dublin Most are looking at three or four seats like yeah. they have two they'd be doing really well to put on one or two extra really well to put on two yeah. can, I, can I ask you something about this and maybe this is my naivety not being being outside the political bubble which you guys in, in, inhabit so well but 
the, the main issue that the people who defected from Labour or, or stopped voting for Labour had with Labour was not on these kind of identity issues which you've just talked about, which are the most identifiable things mm. about the Social Democrats, these new candidates, the identification with social liberalism, the last two referendums, that kind of stuff. It was about them buying into what people on the left characterise as austerity policies. And is, 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 what role does economic politics play in this? And does Labour need to shift in terms of its policies on things like free education, universal health care, higher taxation, all those kind of things. Does it need to move on I those? think that's actually a really mature way of looking at things, but I don't think that's why the Labour Party have suffered <laughs> in the way that they have. They suffered because they are they were seen, rightly or wrongly, as the characteristic of broken promises in mm. the last gen. So in 2011, they believed that they could be the largest party in uh, Leinster House. And they made a series of promises to voters, identifiable to a cohort, a, a large cohort of voters. You know, no cutting child benefit, no increase in student fees. These things that really the Labour Party have always fought for. And when, when they went into power, they reversed those They reversed those key positions for them. Now, they will say it's absolutely, it was absolutely necessary. It was a time of austerity. When they went in, they realised it was way worse than they had. But they shouldn't have made those promises in the first place. The hubris of Eamon Gilmore and the people around Regardless of whether they should have him. made them or not, that's what people identify the Labour Party. Mm-hmm. That's why they suffered as much as they did in 2016. And can they come back from that? And it go, that, that kind of speaks very much to the... The conflict of the at the heart of the Labour Party, they see themselves as being, you know, centre left party, but the party that takes responsibility for government that is willing to enter government. Like Aon O'Riordan made that point in his op-ed on Monday that you know we are the party who are most likely to be courted by Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael because we are the ones who will enter government and can act as a party of government. And I think that's the conflict that 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 was probably Labour's undoing, as Sarah said, is that. If you speak to people who were around the party, at the top of the party, at that time in 2011, they say, yes, we kind of knew that the promises we were making were unlikely to be fulfilled in the whole, but we believed that we had a responsibility to get in there and well, prevent... Sure, no, I mean, I've, and I've heard all that again and again and again, but one of the things that was interesting about Eona Reardon's piece this week, I thought, was he seemed to say that they needed to put the sackcloth and ashes still on yeah. a little bit more. They needed to come out and say, we specifically made mistakes here, we specifically mm. betrayed or didn't fulfil promises which we made to the electorate, and, Jack- and we need to fess up better on that. Jack O'Connor, who's now the party's chairman says the same thing that we need to do a full review of how we operated during that period between 11 and 16 and even the 16 election he says that that needs to be done and it needs to be seen to be done by the public so we can come out and say yes we made mistakes we've learned and now we can move on yeah i think there is probably an appetite for that but the problem with that is um if you open up that debate and aon o'reardon talks about this debate jack o'connor talking about this debate how do you quarantine that from the issue of Brendan Howland as the party leader like it's a very difficult period they're going into yeah and I think the problem for them as well is that you know for those of us who observe Leinster House on a daily basis Brendan Howland is constantly reminding us that he was Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform and Alan Kelly reminds us often too that he was once Minister for the Environment so if you're constantly harping on to a time when you were in government even though it seems to have been at your peril people will continuously link you with that period in time so the more the Labour Party talk about their time in government the more they will suffer like realistically people associate Joan Burton and Brendan Howland with an uh, with an era of austerity and mm. and cutbacks, and that's the problem for them. They can't yeah. they can't unchain and that. The, the personalities in the parliamentary party don't help. So one of them said to me, "Look, being realistic, 
you turn on your radio on a Saturday afternoon or an evening when you're driving home in your car and you hear a current affairs debate and who is representing the Labour Party, Brendan Howland, Joan Burton, and there are people of a different era, and you are reminded of that era, it would be a lot easier for them if they had a younger cohort of people in there who could step up on a national level. They just don't have that, and I think they were really unfortunate in how the last election turned out from that the people they ideally if they were to renew the party could do would get uh, I'm not saying could do a losing seats but if they were to have the same net figure of seven in the oh, party with different faces different faces and that was really really unfortunate for them right well mo- moving on to this jam-packed political yeah. agenda um, uh, <laughs> this week you know we've we've very well-read listeners. I'm sure some of them are on the beach at the moment are reading various tomes of philosophy mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, high politics. And they, they will all be familiar with the, with the French writer Jean Baudrillard who, uh, who made the point, and I, and I quote, human experience is a simulation of reality. And that seems like a, an appropriate way to think of the current presidential contest, Fiat. God, I didn't know where we were going there. Okay. <laughs> I suppose there's about as much happening in the presidential contest as there is in politics generally it's at the moment. It's this kind of... I'm not, I, I refuse to use the phrase fake news, but it is this sort of artificial construct. It's like a pretend political yeah, contest rather than a, a real yeah, like one. And even, the, even like the councils are hearing hearing out the aspirant candidates moment, but there's nothing they can do because they can't actually pass a motion backing X candidate or Y candidate until the presidential order is signed. So When does that happen? Uh, that would happen, I think, in September, early September. Okay. So there'd, there'd be they a have mo- to officially yeah. declare that the date of the presidential yeah, election they have to, they have to declare, So there'd be like... Yeah. There's basically there'll be basically a month of people trying to get onto the ticket, and then a month of actual campaigning when the the, the, the candidates are finalised. So we're in that kind of strange uh, space at the moment, and I suppose that the reason it's kind of it's still a bit fake is because we've yet to see how Michael D is going to perform or Michael D is going to approach the campaign, and that will set the tone for everything else. That everybody's waiting to define themselves against Michael D or to see what Michael D is doing. Well, he's out and about a fair bit. He's out and about, but he's di- but he's done really very little in terms of. He's against gambling and, uh, he's against gambling uh, and advertising and, and, and sports. And bad things generally and likes a bit of mm-hmm. ground hurling as he told RC in the day of the <laughs> hurling final. But apart from that, uh, we don't, you know, there, there is a kind of a, a bit of a effort to bring his expenses into the debate, you know. Who's his, trying to bring that in? I think Porrick O'Kadig was the first person to start it. Porrick O'Kadig still is yet to make up his mind whether he's actually running or not. Mm. He did an interview on in Sunday Independent a week or two ago in which he said that um, President Higgins should publish his medical records and his expenses and there has been some coverage about you know the president staying in a hotel in Geneva and how much did it cost the taxpayer etc 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 obviously the president's expenditure is completely outside the remit of freedom of information so nobody well, knows you say obviously but why is that because it was just part of the initial freedom of legislation when it was uh, freedom of information legislation when it was passed I don't know the rationale for it but it's just always been accepted well I actually yeah I v- was writing about this yesterday and I started to wonder why was it exempt from freedom of information you know and uh, mm. was it because Brendan Howland was introducing the legislation and Michael D. Higgins, you know, you start to have all these conspiracy theories. So uh, I contacted someone who pointed me to Article 13.81 of the Constitution. Oh, yes. Always at work. <laughs> Very good. says that the office of president shall not be answerable to either houses of the Oireachtas or to any court for the exercise and performance of the powers and functions of his office. Okay. So I don't know if, and I spoke to um, David Kenny, uh, who's a constitutional mm. expert um, in UCD, and I spoke to him this morning, and it's not quite clear whether freedom of information legislation can be introduced 
in line with what that um, constitutional clause says. So mm. I think you could ar- you could make cases basically on Either both way. sides. Yeah. I don't know if it's as clear cut as people think it's going to be. But one thing is absolutely sure from the reading of that is that this notion that the Public Accounts Committee is going to have remit over the presidential uh, expenses, it's just it's mm. completely unconstitutional, but unfortunately... Well, I think we could all accept that, but I, I have to see, I just... It seems perfectly reasonable to me that we should be able to see how our money's being spent on the presidency. I think we do. I think there's headline figures in the CNAG's report every year about the cost of the, the office, but I don't think... What yeah, you'll be able to see that €30 million yeah. Euro has been given to the president's... Uh, Sorry, thrown up for the last seven years, but you wouldn't necessarily be able to see where that money was. Mm. And, and what about this issue of health? We know they have this fantastic system in the States where Donald Trump's doctor pronounces him, I think, the healthiest man ever to have lived, you know? I mean, should we not be looking for the same kind of evidence in relation to Michael D? He was asked the question directly um, a week or two ago and didn't answer it. She said, I'm in the best health I've ever been. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really healthy. I did have an issue with my leg a couple of years ago, but now I'm fine. Didn't directly answer the question of whether he would publish his medical records. It's kind of a funny one because a bit like the expenses one, it's a kind of underhand way of getting at Michael D. Like, we don't have a tradition, as you say, of this like kind of full exposure of your medical records. I'm not sure people would really want to see mm. your medical records. But it's a way of kind of going nudge, nudge, wink, wink. He's really old, isn't he? And is he going to be able to be there for seven years? Same thing. And the expenses thing is sim- something similar. Like, well, Michael D would be reluctant, as I understand it, to do to publish his expenses. It would be very much at the last. And if he's under extreme pressure, he would do so. But I don't think he will. But it's a way of saying, in, the, in a way, he's damned if he does, he's damned if he doesn't. If he doesn't, he'll look like he's something to hide. If he does, you know, he'll come out that he's stayed in nice hotels for the last seven years. Well, of course, he's the president of Ireland. That's the way, that's the, way the office operates. But we do know that Michael D, that there will be a contest and that Michael D Higgins will be the first president to actively campaign while sitting in the office because de Valera didn't do that in mm-hmm. 1966. And we also know that these presidential contests, when they happen, tend to get down and dirty and pretty personal. Yeah, they're, they're a bit of a like a, a bear pit, really. You know, the last presidential election was brutal and I think Fiek won an award, uh, a journalism award, for his coverage of the presidential election last time round. Uh, Fond the, memories, Fiek. There's <laughs> tear to my eye. <laughs> they are brutal. Brutal, to say the least. And I think what you've seen over the last number of weeks is that there's very few sticks to beat Michael D. Higgins with. He's he's fought an election in 2011 and he escaped it relatively unharmed. He's had a good seven-year tenure. Uh, people are fond of him, particularly young people. So if you're if you're a, pres- a, a budding presidential candidate and you're looking at what potentially, you know, how can I make hay? You look at his Michael D.'s age and you look at the issue of expenses. Now, I think the issue of age doesn't necessarily, I think, play a key factor in it. I've, uh, I spoke recently on this podcast about how I, I was at an event in Smithfield and he was there and he shook the hands of about two and a half thousand people. And mm. I swear he's more energy than all five. Yeah, no, I've seen that too, put, to be fair. The together. age thing is also a way of reminding people that he promised he'd only run for, run for one term. It's Which actually a way is of resonating with people. Yeah anecdotal was at my in my nanny's house recently and all of she had all her friends over and they were like we love Michael T but he said he'd only go for one term yeah. and it's actually I hope, I hope Sarah's nanny isn't listening to this no, podcast I, I just love the way Sarah can pronounce on, on constitutional ni- niceties <laughs> and the next thing you know we're with her nana that's great well we you know we haven't gone to the level of naggins yet so which we did last time on the podcast so we'll get there but uh, no like I think that is resonating with people but people are just so fond of Michael T Higgins so I think if you were a boy presidential candidate do you want to get down and dirty against the mm. the, pre- the president I like I don't know but so if, what there's, I think if, there's a, if there's a 
around not the necessarily bush. a crowded field, but if there's four or five candidates, you might want one of the other candidates to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. You don't want to do it, but you wouldn't mind somebody I, else not, doing it. Uh, it hasn't gone unnoticed that Jared Crockwell, who is not running for president, is still out contributing to debate and raising cre- questions about President Higgins and the expenses incurred in his office. So, you know, it's no no harm to have someone like Jared Crockwell in there beating the or like you know as Sarah says raising questions and poking and so looking at it now I mean who are we likely to have in the field Sarah well it seems like Gavin Duffy already uh, you know believes that he's a presidential nominee he's got a campaign office in Drogheda he had posters up for the FLAF um, had to take them down had to take them down after illegal posters should he be prosecuted for that I wonder well he didn't seek permission and he put them up that's that's littering as far as I know it is uh, littering it's um, so I'm sure (laughs) Loud County Council will be all over him like a rash Uh, but I think he's already presumed that he's got a ca- he has the nomination so maybe you know mm. maybe we don't know the numbers as well as he does but um, I think Joan Freeman will get the nominations I think if if she doesn't get it by local authority level I think independent candidates or sorry independent DDs and senators will sign her nomination papers within the Oireachtas um, I don't know if Kevin Sharkey will be as successful but I am travelling to Carlo uh, we race in town to Carlo after this podcast mm. to hear um Mr. Sharkey and others uh, address the Carlow County Council so maybe have a better uh, idea after that um, and then of course we have the Sinn Féin uh, mm. candidate so and we have Podrick O'Kady just to say who well we don't yet know what, do like, he seems to kind of be still considering it like he's yet yeah. to say yay or nay and just looking at the potential candidates now Gavin Duffy seems to be trying a lot he's putting a lot of effort into it he, he is going to meet in councillors he's campaigning as Sarah says he's turning up at events so he's you have to say now he is has to be taken as a serious candidate because he wants to get into the race. Joan Freeman has announced that she's running, but we haven't seen much by follow-up activity. Mm. She's speaking at the council today, but Duffy is quite visibly active. Joan Freeman isn't. Okadig is neither. He's not turning up at this council today. And he's what not. about Sean Gallagher? Um, he's still like you know the people. Someone I spoke to last night said he will. Oh, he'll play a very active role in the campaign. My suspicion as of now is that he wants to run, but is keeping his powder dry and so he can give himself the excuse of oh I'm hanging back I never made a suspicion I never made a declaration I suspect that he may enter the race later um, but he's giving himself leeway to back out if, if, if he needs to I think he's quite enjoying this you know he's mm. observing from the sidelines like he he obviously issued that letter to all the local authorities encouraging them to use their constitutional right to nominate a candidate but then he also wrote to the Minister for Housing and the chairperson of the Housing Committee about um, electoral leaflets so you know under the electoral law each candidate can send leaflets you know to to um, householders and he was saying it's a waste of money just for each candidate so why don't we all just put them on the one leaflet you know so he he's he's almost involving himself but not ne- mm. not declaring so I think what we could potentially see happen is when we uh, we know who our candidates are he'll come in at the last minute and announce mm. his candidacy but right now I think he's just sitting at the sidelines and quite enjoying you know the the mess that it's that it has become because what you know when I was away um obviously we had Jared Crockwell who had been the stalking horse for so long announcing that he wasn't going to participate and then um you saw quite a number of interviews by Gavin Duffy which he didn't necessarily come off the better of you know in particular Hugh O'Connell did a really good interview with him in the Sunday Business Post It was uh, anybody who hasn't read it I'd recommend that they go and have a listen to it or have a a read of it rather Absolutely it was just I mean the Business Post do those things very well you know they do questions and answers but it was it was that moment where Gavin Duffy having 
a couple of lines previously said that he would run a transparent and open campaign then asked to go off the record when they were discussing the issue of Dennis O'Brien and he's all he also did an interview I think it was with John Lee in the Mail on Sunday but it wasn't the Mail on Sunday and he said you know I'm going to take my 325,000 euro salary you know Michael D Higgins doesn't so for for a PR guru who hasn't necessarily been very uh, <laughs> PR savvy but uh, I think you know Gallagher is watching I would imagine with interest from the sidelines and I think we could potentially see So to me looking at this from outside Sean Gallagher Gavin Duffy and Paul Ricocati look as if they'd be kind of swimming in the same fish tank Mm. in terms of the type of candidates they are they're they're, they're business people middle aged businessmen yeah middle aged businessmen basically Um, but curiously enough just speaking to people close to Michael D the one candidate they don't fear but the one candidate they believe could cause them difficulty is Gallagher they are watching to see if he comes on the pitch because they looked at the vote he got in the border counties the last time in particular it was extremely high and they think that he may have a strong card to play in that there perhaps could be a sense that although it is seven years a long time and he, that may have been his moment and it passed that someone said to me yeah look Gallagher could come out and say hey I was the first victim of fake news you know yeah, and which, I'm sure he, which, he, which, he, which he was and he could play into that like no well your man was hard done boy and yeah. the shooter stood him down and I think there is a there is a fear that like that he that, that if he is to come on the pitch that he will be the main challenger to Michael D and that of all of them like his skeletons have been or his cupboards have been well and truly you know emptied of skeletons so I'm that sure process won't apply this time where he went through the ringer and everybody went through his business accounts it'll happen to a certain extent mm. but it's unlikely to happen again this time I'm sure he's sitting at home as well thinking what if you know in 2011 it looked mm. you know it looked possible very likely at times that he could be the next president and then well, he was leading in the polls quite comfortably yeah. well, they've, they've done some polling and they, they, they believe that it, it kind of supports the theory that no harm to run you know yeah. and, and meanwhile bubbling way below the surface in Fianna Fáil there's the occasional kind of rumbling about Eamon O'Queeve wanting to reverse the decision of the parliamentary party you reporting that today yeah I think like O'Queeve is just it's hard to it's hard to grasp that man like basically he he isn't, again, another person who's not answering phone calls or texts from anybody. He has a local councillor out, you know, making periodic statements about Eamon wants to run for the presidency. He initially wants to go down to county council. Now he wants to go to the parliamentary party and wants to discuss at their special away day in Malahide next month, which would, wouldn't be great for me, Hall Martin, because the parliamentary party away days are generally the way of putting the best foot forward before the dull term. You're in a constituency where you hope a candidate will be, get elected. You want top of your messaging. And if he's to have a big row behind closed doors about whether they stand a presidential candidate, will not be good for Fianna Fáil. I suspect... Like one part of me thinks that Eamon O'Keefe will appear in a radio station in early September and go, what was all the fuss about? Where did all that come from? I had nothing to do with it. Mm. So there's, there's deniability. Um, I think it's just Eamon O'Keefe trying to have a row with Michal Martin, really. And there's that, there's that leftover bitterness from the referendum that people who may be supporting O'Keefe will be the people who went against Michal Martin and campaigned to retain the Eighth Amendment. There's that lingering bitterness in the party that hasn't been healed. Yeah, and I think um, there's obviously a bitterness between Eamon O'Keeve and mm. Michal Martin since, you know, Eamon O'Keeve was sacked as deputy leader um, way back when. But uh, I think for Michal Martin, he has he has a calling card in saying that O'Keeve was at the two meetings in which this issue was discussed and never said a word. That point has been made, I think, yeah. And I think, um, I think he's quite enjoying, you know, being mentioned in this. And I think maybe next time round, he'll probably well, put himself forward. Everything I hear you saying is, the whole thing sounds like a ginormous vanity exercise. Okay. He, well, such and such is quite enjoying being in the news. Yeah. Such and such is quite well, happy about doing such in the polls. I, it just I, sounds like such a load of nonsense. Have you frankly. read, did you read, if vanity you read Miriam's... Vanity politicians is not a, not a, not a factor to be discounted <laughs> in no, my experience. It's not a surprise to Fia Garay, but uh, if 
you read Miriam's column before um, when she did her awards, I just thought it was superb because there's some there's something has got into a lot of these people who believe that they're worthy of mm. the highest office in the land. And you yeah. look at some of the candidates and you question, you're going to yourself, I mean, it's the highest office in the land, it's the most senior role, you're out there um, on an international level representing Ireland and you just wonder how <laughs> these mm. people sitting at home of a Friday night with a bottle of wine. And you get up with in the them. morning, you look yourself in the mirror and you go, do you know what? I, could <laughs> do it too. I am well, worth it. Well, I just, and I know that Gavin Duffy and others walk away, run away from this comparison as quickly as possible, but we have an example across the Atlantic of somebody who yeah. said, I'm a successful businessman, I am a, put my best foot forward on, on uh, entertainment television, therefore I I can lead this country or I can be the symbol of this country. In 2011, no one would have said that Sean Gallagher would have ran Michael D. Higgins as close as he did. Like, arguably, he was of a similar profile. Most people are going, who is this guy apart from? He has a pre- previous connection with Fianna Fáil. He was involved in Dragon's Den. Yet, he got momentum behind him. So perhaps we shouldn't be too hasty in discounting certain people and saying they won't, they won't be contenders in a month and a half's time. Right, fair enough. Um, Sinn Féin are definitely going to put a candidate forward. Mm-hmm. Almost certainly going to be Leanne Arida. Yeah, well, if I was a betting woman, that's where I'd put my money. Um, I think the party leadership believes that it should be a female um, and they believe that it should be someone within, I suppose, the parliamentary party fold. And I think Narida uh, ticks all those boxes. She also understood, uh, did a very lengthy interview with Marion uh, Fanukin, I think, um, a couple of weeks ago. And the party leadership were very happy with it, even though it seemed a lot of people were questioning some of the points that she raised. But the party leadership believed it was a, it was a very lengthy interview and they were quite happy with it. Yeah, it was a good performed. interview. I don't know if I, probably some of our listeners heard it. I thought Marion Fanukin did a pretty good job on it and kind of addressed some of the, the, the things. I mean, the, the, I think the most contentious issue was the way that Sinn Fein had had its own parallel separate uh, commemorations mm. in 1916. And how would that apply if there was a Sinn Fein president mm. when we come to the treaty and the civil? war and all mm. the rest of it mm. and I think the party leadership felt that if she came, if she could answer that those sort of questions under a sustained lengthy interview that she could survive a very brutal presidential campaign I mean from Sinn Féin's perspective it's sort of a win-win you know they have an open field they have a candidate which I think you know most of them would privately acknowledge may not win the next presidential campaign but they will give Sinn Féin it's a good marketing platform they're the only party officially with mm. a candidate in the in the field out of the but also yeah. bear in mind you know the last presidential election it was Martin McGuinness who stood for Sinn Féin who had obviously a very checkered history and, and past whereas Linda Rita could potentially represent something new for Sinn Féin and that's the image that Mary Lou Macdonald yeah. wants to you know wants to have in a presidential election I don't want to say a clean candidate but you, mm. you, you catch my drift they want somebody who is free of that sort of baggage and that history and she she potentially you know she ticks all those boxes Okay on that basis it sounds like it's a pretty dull uh, presidential campaign coming up and uh, it's a foregone conclusion Fick. am I wrong? I wouldn't say you're right. Well, I think at this stage you'd have to say Michael D is odds-on favourite. Unless we get a late entry into the race by Sean Gallagher or somebody else that would kind of add a bit of excitement maybe to it. But at this stage it looks like it's it, 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 it's going to be a curious campaign and I think Michael D will set the tempo for it. How he decides to engage and how he decides to campaign is going to basically set the, set the way the rest of it uh, progresses. But it's I don't think it'll be as you know, helter-skelter as it was seven years ago when we had a cast of thousands running for an office that was wide open because Mary McLeese had done two terms. It's going to be a, it's going to be a one-of-its-kind campaign, I'd say, because we've never really had this before. Mm-hmm. Well, we had it with De Valera in 66. That was a different era. This is a modern age. We're going to see, it's going to be curious to see how it plays out. 
Well, I suppose now the Leaving Cert is out today. The Rose of Tralee will be kicking off in a week's time. Electric Picnic is on the horizon and the politicians will be back pretty soon, Sarah. <laughs> we hope so, yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, it's going to make for a long August for Fiac and I. But uh, look, I actually think the presidential is going to be great crack because, uh, as Fiac said, we haven't had a presidential campaign like this. I mean, you know, are we actually going to have a sitting president debate mm-hmm. The likes Gavin Duffy and Joan Freeman are, in prime time. Like you know, I mean, it's going to be, a, it's gonna be fascinating. He isn't going to run away from debates and interviews, so we are likely to see Gavin Duffy versus Michael D. Higgins versus Leany Reid if it is her and in an RT studio, or maybe in this studio even, if we ask them. Yeah, oh, it's still my beating heart. Yeah, in fairness, that could potentially damage Michael D. Higgins because people see him as this, you know, they see if they have an image of Michael D. Higgins, uh, you know, with the dogs. So it's his to him. lose. There's an element of that. And Michael yeah. D. Like you know. He has this image over the last seven years of the elder statesman living in the park. Michael D is a pretty bare knuckle political fighter. He wants to be, and there's probably people who haven't seen that, and it'll be interesting to see how they react to that. As Sarah says, if he's in a, an RT studio, and they'll all be out to get him, they'll all be poking him to to make him try and react. You know, just the fiery old Michael D who should call, I think he called that guy that American guy a wanker down the line one time yeah. in, a, in a news talk show. Does that guy yeah. reappear? It's sounding more and more like a Seinfeld show. Fair, yeah. Sarah. Thanks very much for coming. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and our engineer, Philip Brady. Remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider may be. You can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. Your views are always very welcome. You can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can always find me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.